had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. So welcome to Transformation Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. I could not be more excited to have Dr. Becky Martinez of Infinity Consulting with me. Thank you, Becky, so much for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be in this conversation with you. Me too. And I noticed I was doing this because we talk about race. I'm much more grounded, centered. I've done much more work on my internalized dominance around race as a white person, white privilege, classism. I've done some, but growing up middle class, professional class, I've not done anywhere near the work. So I'm breathing a lot and I invite you listeners to breathe. Um, We're talking about engaging the taboo getting honest about class and classism in higher education and possibly beyond. Because Dr. Martinez, you've not only worked in higher ed, that's when I first met you, 2002, we're coming up on our 20 year anniversary. You were in student affairs. um, Then I've known you in your full-time equity work as a consultant, trainer, coach, uh, author, of straddling class in the academy. Did I get that right? You got it right. And then I think there's some articles. I know we've co done some article work. So I've just been following you and I get to work with you as faculty at the social justice training institute a couple of times a year. So I've learned with you, watched you two decades. Jeez Louise. I know, right? And just so grateful for your work in the world to help organizations change, leaders change. And to really, as you talked in your bio, hold the both and. And so if you don't mind, just letting the listeners know a bit more about you uh, and maybe how you came to have class and classism so central to currently your work in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I would add, in addition to us knowing each other for 20 years in those professional ca- uh, capacities, that you're also my friend and mentor. Um, and I think that that's what gets forgotten. Right, is that we go, I even in, I'm reworking my bio so that I started out in a who I am in my humanity space and not what I do. Um, and I think that that's a class reframe. Uh, so um, as you were doing that, I was like, I'm your friend and you're like, you're my mentor too. So I don't want us to forget that. Uh, so I'm Dr. Becky Martinez, she and hers, and I, um, I'm in Southern California. Uh, which has all of its sometimes class implications. Um, I love ice cream and running and I'm a proud aunt and um, I'm a fiercely loyal friend sometimes to the detriment. (laughs) And I used to work in higher ed and that's where I grew up. I often say that's how I grew up, especially as a first generation college student who grew up working class who wanted to be a doctor because that's what you're supposed to do when you don't know any differently. 
Um, and how I became so grounded in this particular area of inclusion, which is only talked about a little bit, uh, is it actually at SJTI too. <laughs> I was, and so it was SJTI 2 or the renewal. And I think we called it SJTI 2 at that time. And um, we were working our, like you, we had the opportunity to get into a dominant group and a privileged group um, or a dominant group and a subordinated group. And I think I chose the dominant group and there were two other people in it. Um, and like we talked, it, it was interesting because we all have a similar background. Um, and that is what we talked in about with class and this straddling space. Although I don't think I had a name or we had a name for it that time. And I was in deep pain mm. for, <laughs> for, for that entire conversation, which tears are, aren't new. Um, in any place that I go. Um, but it was this like uh, guilt and shame of uh, coming from a working class background and, um, and the shame that I felt about that. Uh, and then the guilt and shame that I felt as a middle-class person uh, and how to like rectify that in my spirit and how I treated people and what I think of them. So that it was my entry point in this conversation and in this work. And since then, it's just become something that sits deeply in my soul mm. um, because I think we don't talk about it um, to like authentic ways. Mm -hmm. You're taking me back to probably a SGTI renewal before that because I don't. We had a five or six people in the dominant group on class, and I felt guilt and shame because I was one of the few people there who had who grew up in class privilege, middle professional class, and now I call myself more upper middle class. And to see how many folks in higher ed, probably nonprofits, as well as maybe even K-12, I wonder how many folks also might be class straddlers now. Um, and fewer folk maybe like me, where I've had class privilege all my life, didn't have to think about it, thought it was only about money, how much money you had. And I looked up the hill where the people that were the doctors and lawyers, and then I felt less than because we were only middle class. My mom made my clothes. I was embarrassed because I was also much heavier at the time and we didn't have money to buy me clothes. So I was looking at what I didn't have, not all that we have. And that gets me to what is class? Because I sure still don't have a great understanding of it. What I uh, really like, I love about your story and one of my favorite questions, and you know, I love to ask them, um, is like, what's your class story? Because mm. we get into the complexities of that. So um, as I, you know, hear you, there's the referent groups that you're talking about. So, you know, up the hill, this is how I got my clothing, um, how I felt. Uh, and that was in reference or comparison to another group. And, and that's sometimes how we work class. So we may not know any differently uh, until there is something different. Um, and so as, uh, you know, as we engage in kind of what classes or social class identity, particularly because, you know, language changes and terms are fluid, um, we've added social class to there, although I use class more often it's easier and that's where people go is like various forms of capital. So it's not just about money and assets and what you have and what you can see. And I, like, that's important. Um, that's important to pay attention to, right? What is your bank account? Do you own a home? Do you have debt? Can you 
buy food? Um, can you buy clothes? So like the financial piece of capital, which is where most people enter the conversation around class. And, you know, it's like social capital, cultural capital, academic capital, language capital, and how all those different forms of capital manifest itself out. So there's like shame and guilt because of, um, what's interesting how class works itself out is, you know, folks that grew up, um, probably middle-class plus, and I always say plus because upper middle-class, middle-class, wealthy, rich, owning class, um, and that, like, those last three terms are in its own category, um, but can feel like guilt and shame. And then on the other spectrum, people who grew up with, um, like, working class or poor um, feel guilt and shame. (laughs) So there's, like, these similar feelings, uh, and, um, but we don't talk about them. Uh, which is, I think, pieces of the other pieces of capital that exist. Um, So social capital, uh, it is, um, you know, who you know, who you know, uh, networking, um, connections, Mm. Um, cultural capital is what you know. So the information that you have in in a, particularly an academic setting or an academy um, with those two forms of capital, that you want to know um, like information around systems, schools, uh, um, what holds names. Um, you know, I probably wouldn't be here if I didn't know you and I was connected to SJTI and we've got to work together. So like the social and the cultural capital that comes even in our relationship. Uh, and then you have the academic capital. So those three forms of capital, the ones that at least in academia, we started talking about. And that was Bordeaux's work on financial, social, and cultural capital. And since then, it's been expanded. And so think of linguistic capital, like how mm. we talk, um, what accents folks use. Can I say both? And that's okay. And it's not tagged as unprofessional. That's, um, we could unpack unprofessional and professional. Uh, and then you have... Um, you know, academic capital. So where you got degrees and what those degrees are in um, and how many of them do you have? And do you have an EBD or a PhD or just a master's, which I hear often in the academy. Um, So there's so many forms of capital that just talking about it in an economic and financial is a disservice. And then there's that, so how do we feel around that? Because, you know, I love to sit in my heart and like, how does, how does that land on folks and how do we feel around having more or less or not knowing? Um, and that's like a place that a lot of people don't want to or are protected in their spirits to not go. Mm. Thank you. And as I hear you, the class and the race overlay are screaming at me, um, especially in the academy. And, I remember growing up and I did go, took one class at a community college when I was a senior in high school, but I was kind of like, look at me, I'm so good. I never would have considered going to community college because the classist and racist beliefs that I had, oh, low income, people of color go there. I'm going to a four-year private liberal arts. Um, And so I always believed that if you had class privilege, you were smarter, better. If you didn't, you had to pull yourself by the bootstraps. And I wonder how much of those classist attitudes 
are still prevailing and contributing why I believe like you in the higher ed, I'm usually one of the first to bring up class, unless it's someone by hierarchy that's experiencing oppression and classism, staff, entry level, but to actually talk about elitism and classism and faculty, um, the degrees, I have an EDD that's not valued like a PhD. So it's just these gradations. So what do you think is still happening in 2001? What are we, 2021? Uh, I don't want to be as old as I am. Um, I'm half joking, but not really. What do you think? Why do we not talk about class? Why, what are the barriers we create and the systemic dynamics that keep us from having authentic, engaged, disrupting conversations about class and classism? And particularly in the academy, right? Um, so I'll, I'll actually, I'll start there in the academy. So even calling it the academy, um, people have been like, the academy sounds so, um, so class. And I was like, what is, one of the reasons, I mean, there's several reasons we resist or ignore or don't want to talk about it is uh, our institutions, at least most of them were founded in a very elitist and classist space. Uh, so, I mean, it's the same, I mean, it's, I, I don't, it's not the same, but there are similar themes around why we don't want to talk about whiteness in academia. Uh, it's a system that was set up right, uh, by and for people who had at least a, an amount of wealth until we, until we uh, developed other institutions like community colleges, right? Uh, if we think of education in a particular, or uh, in broad base, like trade schools, um, but in these, we'll say in the construct of a four-year institution, like, yeah, it was founded on being better than. So why do we want to talk about founded on being better than, um, and we carry this like badge of, um, of class around, you know, if it's an Ivy League school or if it carries emphasis to it, um, or if it has name recognition, or if it has more social and cultural capital than other institutions. So why would an institution want to talk about class in ways that is damaging a reputation or they have to shift the way that they think or engage in it, or they have to look at the tenured, like the very class tenured process. Um, and, you know, the inequity of pay of faculty, staff, administrators, where people park, what their practices are, what spirit days are like, uh, like all of those things. It's, it's so it's heavy and it's a lot and it's a mirror and people get nervous. I think that that's the other piece is mm -hmm. that like people get nervous talking about it because then you, you talk about what you have or what you don't have, and then it becomes really personal. And it is so, as you said, it's so intertwined with various identities. And so the first place that we go to is race and understandably so, but also how is class like wrapped up in um, sexuality and, um, disability, which, you know, we don't talk about disability only in, you know, like what's accessible. So it like, it's really tangled. And I think it, uh, similarly to how you all taught me around SJTI to pull the thread around race so we can clearly see how it shows up. We also have got to be able to pull the thread around class to see how it clearly shows up 
And that gets really difficult for, um, I think, folks that identify, in my experience, BIPOC folks, right, who now have this middle class space because it's like, oh, that's a privileged space and it's intersecting and it's messy. Um, and when I hear the word professional, like I always like perk up um, and so many people have that themed around race and that's such a classed term. Mm. Uh, so even nowadays I say um, blue collar professionals. I, I, I don't say just blue collar because um, they are folks that are blue collar are professionals. Um, and I've been naming myself as a first generation white collar professional because um, it just broadens and people have been like, oh, me too, that's a name. Um, but like, let's reframe professional so that it is at least as classed as possible. Um, and we can uplift people who are plumbers because I don't know the dish about plumbing and I need a plumber and that's professional and that's valuable. Yeah working with your hands, that's dirty, that's less than, that's immigrant. I mean, there's so many of these different marginalized identities that seem so intertwined over the centuries. Um, you may have intentionally gotten quiet when you started talking about secrets, did you, but your voice got much quieter when you said people don't want to talk about it, they feel uncomfortable. So- Oh, it's interesting, thanks for the feedback. Well, I want to go there. We have, you know, maybe five-ish minutes before the break. Could you say more about what the secrets are about? That shame, that guilt. Because um, mm. you have so much about you that's about healing and liberation. And I, mm -hmm. I want to come back to that after the break. But why do we individually, particularly in our marginalized identities, have that shame and guilt because of our class backgrounds? And, well, we have been socialized not to talk about class. So, you know, the, what the things that you don't talk about are politics, religion, and class. And so there's the, the direct um, messaging that you don't talk about it. Um, and what's fascinating about that is we talk about it all the time. We just have coded language. Um, and it's like, you know, uh, have you taken a vacation? Where, how did you spend your weekend? Um, I, I'm going to go grab a coffee, right? Um, do you want one also? Um, what did you pack for lunch? Um, what language do we use to describe? So we always talk about class, but we don't, there's no consciousness or there's rarely consciousness around how we talk about class. Um, and, um, and it, it and that's what, like, that's for me, like the, the beauty of it is there's this, this language, even the words like nice or fancy. Good neighborhood. Right. Good neighborhood. I went to a fancy dinner, right? I drive a nice car. Um, they, uh, they have raggedy clothes. <sighs> so classed and, um, and I think that that's the, I don't know if it's the, the tension or the um, dissonance that exists in that. And then people want to talk about because they're going to talk about what folks have and don't have and what they have access to um, or not. And it's so, um, it's so very completely clear 
Um, whereas like, like, it's like, oh, okay. Like who has access to what, who can get what, um, who is believed, like all of those pieces, um, can be fast and mm. yeah. Mm. So I was thinking about elite colleges, elite independent K-12 schools would probably say we're disrupting classism by, you know, 30% of our monies are going to people who are low income and yet they're not changing the culture the climate and look how we're helping you and that we're so good that uh philanthropic philanthropic classes charity is still in me and the other side of that i think is because i think of why middle upper middle plus class folks don't want to talk about how much we have because then someone say, well, how are you using your resources? Why do you keep so much? And so that fear of losing, which I think it's the same of white folks and white privilege, if we really dismantle racism, we won't be able to have all that we have. Whew, we're going to be going to break soon. Any other final reflections? And I'd love you to let folks know where they can find you if they want to keep talking or have you come to their campus, their organization. Mm. So, um, so I'll, I'll give that information and then we'll see. Um, so it's uh, infinitymartinez.com. That's my um, website, but it's at Dr. Becky Martinez. That's my Twitter. Um, that is my Instagram. My email is beckymartinez1 at gmail, well, like the number one, not spelled out one. So those are my contact ways. And there's so much that you just said there. <laughs> Welcome back. Keep going. And then um, you got a few minutes. Yeah. As a, um, there is like, there's just this guilt and shame. And how do we work through that? I think in our dominant identities, um, but as we see it in, you know, play out in, while well, we give students money, right. Or people have a particular salary. Um, that's where folks get stuck just in that uh, economic capital. And so we've created equity through giving you enough money. Um, and, and institutions have started doing that. Um, I think it was Opportunity Vanderbilt was the first institution that gave, um, if you had that financial aid, four years of tuition paid. Um, and that doesn't make students feel comfortable or part of um, or supported. So let's give you this money. And um, which is awesome. So like to not yeah, be in keep student doing that, debt but. is great. <laughs> and how are we um, creating resources so that students can talk about what their experience is or what they're struggling with? And it's not just students, it's also staff and faculty that come from working class and poor backgrounds because they're going into a system that they've known because they have a degree or two or three um, but there's the assumption that they have a working class, they have a middle class plus origin. That's a myth in higher ed. If you work in higher ed, you come from at least middle class and have to absorb their values and navigate through how they think folks should be. And there's no discussion that I don't feel comfortable or a part of or seen or heard because I didn't spend this weekend vacationing or I didn't vacation on a plane when I was young or I didn't have vacations like I worked or we took care of ourselves during the summer because my Pam family or people who took care of me worked like that's not something that we talk about because there's the assumption that 
we are all from at least middle class spaces. Yes. And again, all that shame. And so the same of empowering, amplifying, healing, and still universities, colleges, I gave you this money, therefore you owe me. And it just hit me. I'm sure you talk about this with the whole idea of reparations because of uh, having universities built with enslaved labor. I wonder if there's a parallel of universities coming to terms with how they have been so classist and perpetuated classism, capitalism, and harmful, destructive global and national ways. I don't know the word for it, but I've never thought of that before. Dr. Becky Martinez, Infinity Consulting. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. We'll be back to Transformation Change Radio after this break. I can't wait. We're back in that jazz mood, aren't we? I don't know. What happened to the rap music, Benny? So, oh my gosh. There you go. Thank you, Benny. I like it. You're welcome. I'm going to play that in my car. Boy, I got to have me some fake something now. <laughs> I'm telling you. Get in the groove with Dr. Pat and her guests on Transformation Talk Radio. It's always something new around here. Visit thedrpatshow.com. Consider follow-through in five stages. First, the vision. Describe the goal and strategy. Second, feasibility. Find out if there are constraints. Third, planning. Lay out a plan and a timetable with target dates. Fourth, action. Do the steps required to get to the finish line. And fifth, completion. Tie up any loose ends. Most people are more comfortable with either planning or doing. Strong planners may hyper-focus on planning and never get to the action. Impatient doers jump straight into action, but can get derailed if they didn't plan for contingencies. Realizing your tendencies, you can determine where your follow-through falls short. Learn the strategies that will keep you on track in my podcast, ADHD Self Mastery, Customized Strategies for Your Unique Brain. Being a mom is one of the most rewarding and challenging parts of life. And you are tired, I'm sure. But look, when you make time for personal development, you will show up better for your children. Alicia Lyons is the mom support coach, helping moms like you become the people they want their kids to look up to. Schedule your free consultation at alishalyons.com today. A-L-Y-S-I-A-L-Y-O-N-S.com. Are you passionate about impacting social change or working towards anti-racism as a society? Are you willing to deconstruct your innermost thoughts, ideas, and beliefs about racism? Then Inflection Point Podcast, Cultivating Change from the Inside Out is the show for you. Join Anita Russell, Mavis Bauman, and Gail Hunter in open, honest, and deliberate conversations every first and third Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, only on TransformationTalkRadio.com. You're driven, and it totally shows. Your career is taking off, you're killing it in the mom game, but did your health needs make it on the plate this week? 
Tune in to Boss Up Babes, where Carissa Adkins helps babes show up, boss up, and thrive every second and fourth Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Become the boss babe you were meant to be. To sign up for one of Carissa's group coaching programs, visit 365dailyhustle.com. Dr. Becky Martinez, we don't have enough time. I'm loving the conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. We left beginning to talk about how folks that don't have a middle class plus are coming to universities, colleges, and it's just like not fitting in, but forced to. Could you say more about either what the experience is, what I'm particularly also interested in, because I was swimming and perpetuating middle-class plus academia culture that actually keeps classism in place and the damage and the harm we cause when we do that. So anything in there that gets your attention? Yeah. Um, I, I, there's a few things. Um, one, I talk about the notion of office hours and how that is a, um, folks from poor working class backgrounds, like uh, we need to explain what office hours is because and, and the value of them because oftentimes it is we don't seek out help or support you just like put your head down and you get your work done and you're hard working and you figure it out and so even the notion of office hours right so this so academia has some setups that are um, great support systems but we get lost in the jargon or assumption that people know what they are and don't explain them well enough. Um, so, you know, office hours, uh, let's talk about what those mean and, um, you know, what the value is. Another uh, dynamic that exists in academia, and I've learned it more and I am recognize it in a more clear way is, um, like I grew up, and many people grew up um, in poor working class settings or poor and or working class settings that like you're direct, you just say the thing. There's not the, all the feelings yeah. associated. Um, and like, you don't hate each other at the end of it or like feel a certain way. And you cannot be direct and say stuff in academia, right? That's why I think we say, well, let's be intentional and strategic. Let's set up this committee. And that is really challenging for some folks who are like, why do we have to talk about this for a year and a half when we can just do the thing? Or we could just say the thing and then figure out how to do the thing. But like, that's not what you're supposed to do because that's not playing by the rules and that's not nice and you can't be direct and um, people feel a certain way about that. And it, so as a consultant, I'm able to see it more clearly and it's just frustrating. And I hear that all the time. I mean, we hear that all the time. Like how many damn meetings do you have to have to make this decision? But you want to make sure that everybody is happy enough and they're okay enough with it and that it makes strategic sense. Um, So let's do another assessment. Um, mm -mm. Uh, And that I, uh, I see a lot of folks challenged by this academic or systems approach to making decisions and it's in such 
um, a different value system than, than lots of other places. Right? <laughs> it's just this thing in higher ed. Cause you know, I think when we work with nonprofits that isn't as prevalent or less when I do, and definitely it's not what you're doing when you're at the Home Depot working. Right? Like, hey, here's the thing. And I, there's all kinds of class in that because you're being directed and told what to do. And, um, and I, I get that. And it's just like, just get it done. Um, well, as I hear you, status quo, all that you just said are such great resistance strategies to keep the classist, racist, like status quo in place to not have senior leaders next level, maybe the next labor feathers ruffled. And y'all are just here to serve us because that's what poor and working class people should be doing is serving us with our class privilege. Oh, <sighs> deep breath on those ones. Right. And, you know, I, similarly to how I see race play itself out, if we have, um, you know, white leaders in upper administration positions, um, is that like, then you got to talk about how you really show up. And so right, these upper level positions come with all kinds of privilege around class. So you got to like talk about how you really show up and that could be from how much you get paid to where your office is to um, where your parking spot is to the fact that people come up to you and want to talk to you and maybe want something from you. Um, and like you got to be grounded to have that conversation <laughs> and that it's really difficult just as it is for white people to like talk about that. It's difficult for somebody who earns $200,000 as a VP to talk about that in like ways that um, are responsible and um, like what's my responsibility as a, and I know that I'm not going to be able to give entry-level folks a $10,000 raise. Right. So like now you're talking about some like factors that impact folks' lives and, hmm, um, you know, I, I think of like, how do people shift whiteness, right? How do people shift class? Does that mean I give up some of my salary? Like that's, there's a direct tangible then. And what does that mean? So, whew, and that means that maybe I can't, right? That maybe that means I can't afford this house or I can't send my kid to the college that they want to go to without being in debt, um, or I have to change an insurance plan. And those are like some heavy things to talk about. We just finished watching Dope Sick. I think it's on. Oh, I haven't watched it. Oh, I can't remember what it's on. Um, opioid crisis, Sackler family, classism, so disgusting. And uh, as much as I know about Appalachia, really helped me see some of the current dynamics of classism. They intentionally focused on West Virginia, Kentucky, Maine, maybe a couple others. So mostly folk of color, working class, coal, um, and to watch all the similar dynamics of 
I'm going to get mine. And so the folks that were fighting against the Sacklers would get bought out. And so they were with the FDA or wherever they were. And it's like, don't push too much. And then we'll hire you at, you know, three, 400,000. And so I just wonder how many folks who move into those upper echelons of 2,000, 200,000 plus relationship with legislatures, corporations, see themselves on boards. And that is so seductive for folks who grew up with class privilege. And I wonder if it's even more seductive or at least very for folks that didn't. And I could be wrong, but that fear of sliding back or, as I've learned with you and some of our other friends, uh, it's not just me. (laughs) It's like I got an extended family that I'm supporting. And so it's just such a complex web for folk. So complex. And, you know, um, class can really be disguised um, for, and that probably would probably more from an upward mobility, what do you have kind of space? Because people can be driving certain things, but they could be in a ton of debt or they could be taking care of extended family. But there's the assumption, right? So uh, as, I, um, as I do more work around social class, there's three ways in which it exists. Um, so, and I always say like in my body, there's three ways that class exists and for everybody else. Uh, so there is your class of origin, you know, so how you grew up, um, what you had, but what your also your like value system was, and um, you know what you think of the hard work and rest, um, which isn't part of um, <laughs> part of our narrative at all. Uh, and then um, you have your current class, uh, so that's you know the capitals. So I always say I'm middle class, like I'm middle class from an economic capital, maybe middle class, um, like upper middle class, and I'm probably upper class and other capital. Um, linguistic, academic, social, cultural, at least when it comes to higher ed. Um, If I were going to like corporate world, that wouldn't be the same. Um, But in academia, I'm clearly like maybe low upper um, with those different forms of capital. And then you have your perceived class. Uh, And so like how, how you are perceived and then what people put on you and you're navigating. um, Well, if, we're navigating that all of the time, whether we know it or not, mm. right? And what are we playing into or not? Um, you know, what am we pushing back or not? And then you have, an, you know, and then you have an institution with 3000 people and then you're trying to, you know, navigate all of that. So it's a lot, um, as you said, the complexity and the complication of that. And, um, and I like me a good steakhouse and some creme brulee, right? <laughs> And so it is, huh, like, um, what is in my means? What is too much? Um, you know, what, like, how do I contribute in other ways? Um, what do I support? But also the question, I think, especially as a consultant, and so this is where salaried is different than what we do, is like health insurance and retirement and just in case of a pandemic that happens and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, so there's like all of these pieces to class mm-hmm. that are, yeah, that, you know, it's just, a, it's like, okay, so this is what I can make or, you know, and I don't have the same um, trajectory of retirement that people who get retirement from their organizations have, or at least most, not everybody. 
or had some inheritance when <laughs> elders passed on. There's two more things I'd love to get awesome. to. Awesome, let's get to it. Um, and this is a new thought. Are there ways that academy needs to change that are really grounded in the poor and working class ways of being? What could we, how, what do we need to shift to, tr- you know, we've got these strategic plans. You know, you said directness and uh, self-care. You inferred that wasn't necessarily a part of how you grew up, but I know you so are talking about healing and self-care now. Are there other ways of being that just may not be literally on the screen of folks in academia who have class privilege and all those three areas you describe, mm-hmm. what are some ways out? What are some ways to dismantle, recreate liberation? Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, so m- my dear colleague and friend and co- co-author, Dr. Sanja um, Ardwan, <sighs> We uh, we talk about Yoso's community cultural wealth model because uh, there's not yet a model to like a development theory or a model to support working class like poor and working class students on wow campus. yeah um, yet not yet yeah uh, <laughs> so we'll put yet yet in the universe uh, and so just like other marginalized identities we borrow. And this particular model um, taught, like talks about, it was written for, at that time, Hispanic students um, in college to, um, to reframe. And so it, oftentimes our models and marginalized identities are from deficit models mm. and flips the script to talk about um, like asset base. And so what are we bring, like what are poor and working class um, people uh, whether that's students or um, faculty, staff, administrators, and that's the class of origin, bringing to campus that is a value and an asset rather than a deficit. So yeah, there's some language and some jargon that we need to understand. Um, and like we're bringing like resistant capital to space, right? Or navigational capital. So knowing how to navigate outside of higher ed to, to get into higher ed. Whether that's the job or the admissions as an undergraduate student, um, so how are we looking at the various forms of capital as a value or an asset coming into the academy? And I think that that like I really appreciate that reframe rather than a deficit. I was just last week um, talking with uh, cabinets at a very elite um, liberal arts college in. Um, in the Northeast, and what, what, what is the Northeast called again? The uh, the whitest part of the country. <laughs> is that what you meant? Oh, it was very white. Um, but like, so I I show this screen of words, so like a wordle, word cloud of terms that I have gathered um, in my own experience or through sessions, and I have people react to it. And one of the words there is options. And the um, university president uh, was like, I can't not not talk about options. It's my responsibility. I said, absolutely, it's a responsibility. Um, And I'm not saying that people shouldn't use any of this language that's out there. Um, And I want us to pay attention to language and terms that are out there that are classed, options being one of those. And it was a lovely conversation that we had for her to talk about 
options in a more clear way around class and um, even being able to coach faculty or staff or students of, because um, what we often say is here is what you need, uh, as opposed to what do you think you need? And here are options and then you choose. Um, and, you know, so from a system space, you know, here are all of the options that exist. We're not going to tell you how to be um, or what to do or what you need to do next. Um, and here is the reality of those options. Um, but we don't do that. We coach from a upward mobility. So the myth that everybody goes and enters higher ed to seek better, which is just bullshit. Um, and that, um, you know, everybody wants to make more money. It's like, no, maybe it's about going back to the community. Maybe it is about having a different status, uh, but the way that the structure is developed is, is that that's what it is. In fact, and I don't know the intricacies to this, but she had shared with me that the next, um, round of college rankings, I assume for liberal arts, cause that's her realm is going to be based on social mobility, but meaning, right? Like where students, what students do afterwards is gonna be how they're ranked. Yeah. Which is all kinds of just, I mean, it's just further, it gets us into class spaces. It's like, oh. So if people wanna become, go into business or corporate, Right, or lawyers, right, or engineers or money makers, they're going to get a higher ranking than if somebody wants to go into nonprofit organizing or education, and that's going to be the lesser ranked. And I know that that's already a part of the structure, but for that to be, um, I think that that was implicit, but for that to be so explicit now is just gross negligence. And that's what we can do in those higher ed institutions like cabinet members, people with um, positional power say no, right? Like talk about that, talk about what that means. But then they've got alumni and donors and um, students that they wanna attract their families or they've got legacies. Um, and so if we wanna flip the script, let's have that conversation leaders that know that that's not okay. Love it. And legislatures, cause the Career ready. I see it in community colleges, four year, and the states that give money to places that say there's more success. Um, you know, minor thing could be senior leaders say, I want to parallel on competencies. Here are the 21st century skills that all people need to have when they graduate. Measure us on that. If you won't change this, at least add all these leadership, community, social justice, equity. So I'm learning so much with you, Dr. Becky Martinez, as I do every time we talk, especially when you give me clear, direct feedback. <laughs> it's part of our friendship as well. So here's my wonder. I've been working, you know, dismantling racism in the classroom, hiring practices, workplaces, creating inclusive. I haven't, except tangentially, brought in class. How could people learn and then be a part of dismantling classism in the classroom, in advising, 
in hiring practices, I'm not even talking tenure yet, but that would be another one of those systemic performance management, just work climate and teams. As in our few minutes we have left, what are some thoughts of what is possible? Well, the, the first part is you gotta like know that it exists. <laughs> and so similar to how I've learned from you, Jamie and Vernon is, is you gotta be able to do your own work. So like enter it through not only what information do I know, which is important, um, but like how does class exist in my consciousness of how I operate? And that could be how I feel, right? And what I talk about, but also leading to, oh, um, how do we not do spirit days with the expectation that people buy their own clothes for that? Right? Or that if you, um, don't go to the happy hour or potluck after hours, it's maybe that you have a second job um, or that you need rest <laughs> because you're so exhausted. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't really talk about rest of a, like a intentional care practice in academia because we're about production. Um, and so even like, how do we look at what our expectations are around production? Um, and how do we coach like our senior leaders around that? Because that's what we do. I mean, I get the end result as a degree, but like how we get there is a whole different space. And how do we like, we are not machines and our institutions are built like machinery of humans, um, especially as we think about a class space. And so um, what we need to do is again, enter at the individual, what do I know? What's my information? What's been my experience? How do I need myself? Um, how do we talk about it? How do we train around it? I mean, in the straddling class book, that's some of the implications were like, people will just want folks to start talking about it because we don't even do that. So we can't go to systems change if we can't even recognize like what is in the room. Um, and then we can like be more clear on like policies and practices. And my experiences is we're just in the infancy stage yeah. um, around like noticing. I don't even think we're naming yet right now. We're just noticing and getting some information. And maybe and, talking, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Talking to people we feel safe with, kind of like how race was talked about, but white folks never really. So really getting it centered in the conversation. So I'm imagining, strategic plan implementations, dismantling racism, classism, other forms of oppression, creating true liberation, but then leaders have to know why. I heard this last week, there's the great resignation. Someone said they heard the great reassessment. Isn't that nice? The great reassessment. I think they said as individuals are reassessing, do I want to work in this toxic, exploitive, capitalistic, classist, racist, work environment anymore? Do I want to do something else? Is there any place better? Mm. I challenge folks to think that systems, organizations, we need to do a reassessment. How do we attract, retain, develop, promote folks that truly can live into the dream that we have of true liberation, strategic plan, equity, inclusion, and to have class and classism centered with race, because that's my only other fear is white people listening will be like, oh, good. Now I don't have to talk about race and drop it off. Mm. So I hope white folks, if you're hearing, 
That's not what we're doing. And you heard me like put them both in there. How do we keep race centered while also talking about classism? Because this country, as you know, listeners, I'm hoping you realize, was really built on the intersections of classism, exploitation, racism, genocide, manifest destiny, colonization. We could keep going. So mm. not either or, as Dr. Becky Martinez says, embracing the both. And as we close, any final thoughts and how can folks find you? Yeah. So uh, ask yourself, the, um, what's my class story and delve mm. into that. Talk about it at a meeting. Um, bring some consciousness and awareness that isn't just from a theoretical and model framework because that's where I entered this work is knowledge which is really critical um and like I didn't I didn't want to get into the what it meant to me personally because there was such pain there right and as I think about healing my class story that's probably why I've done so much work around class and it's so meaningful to me so um so meaningful um and i just like pay attention so that you can then be more clear of how you show up and what your policies are and your practices are but like the like healing work is necessary in class spaces and allow ourselves grace and rest to do it Mm. right allow yourself grace and rest to do it uh grace and rest grace and rest right enjoy I like, let's have some joy in our learning also. And in our transformative work because otherwise it's going to be overwhelming and feel burdensome. And like, I need joy in my life. And so uh, listeners get some joy and get some joy. It could hold both of those at the same time. Uh, you can contact me at uh, my, you know, emails, Becky Martinez, the number one at Gmail. I always feel some kind of way about that because it's one and I'm like, that's the next one that was available. Um, and at Dr. Becky Martinez um, for Twitter and Instagram and then Infinity Martinez Consulting. Mm. So that's how, right? And then I have some publications um, yes, mostly around class um, and I hope to have more. You will. As I'm hearing you, I'm just reminded that uh, cross-race conversations at the beginning, white folk were not able to show up effective and we needed parallel space, white accountability groups, BIPOC, healing space, empowerment space, naming the truth space. And folk of color were probably much more ready to come together than whites were. <laughs> so I think it might be something similar. It's healing space for folks who've experienced classism still are. Maybe some space just for straddlers because that might be a different experience. And clearly I'm feeling more energy about creating holding space for folks in our privileged identities on class and really looking at how we perpetuate similar what I do with white folk. Um, Thank you for helping me find some energy. Dr. Becky Martinez, my friend, my colleague, my teacher, be gentle, be fierce is so you. I love you dearly. And I'm so grateful for you in the world. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, friend. I'm sending you lots of love across the screen. If you've been following me, he's been on several times. You don't want to miss the Reverend Doctor. You all have a great, great healing month. Take good care. Take care. 
You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.